another summer on the island is upon us, and as usual, we have a lot to talk about. Chef Mario Subiaco proposed to Lisbeth Keaton on the widow's walk of the Hotel Nantucket. There's a camera crew filming out in Monomoy. Blonde Sharon has it on good authority that it's a limited series for Netflix. Police Chief Ed Kapanash has been admitted to the Nantucket Cottage Hospital after complaining of chest pain. And there's a steamy debate about whether or not Nantucket should allow topless beaches. We think of ourselves as progressive and sophisticated, but let's face it, we're not France. Then we hear a rumor that Hollis Shaw is hosting something she's calling the Five Star Weekend at her house in Squam. This, of course, captures our full attention. Welcome to Best Seller, where we read and rate the latest book at the top of the New York Times hardcover fiction list. 20 minutes with us, and you'll know whether to read it or re-gift it. I'm Barbara. And I'm Brian. Today we're reviewing The Five Star Weekend by Ellen Hildebrand, number nine on August 13th, 2023, for its seventh week on the list, including three weeks at number one in July. Before we get to Five Star Weekend, what else is happening on the list this week? Four books dropped off the list. Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. It dropping off is not news because it's been toggling on and off the bottom of the list for months. Riley Sager's The Only One Left left the building after five weeks. And we have two one-and-dones. Mm, always sad. Though not as sad as a none-and-done. Of course. Jennifer Armin Trout's A Soul of Ash and Blood, the fifth novel in her Blood and Ash fantasy series, is off the list after a week at number eight. And author Chloe Gong, who has written a number of historical romances for teens, she got on and is now off the adult fiction list for the first time with her novel Immortal Longings, a fantasy inspired by... Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. Any newcomers on the list? Somebody's Fool, Richard Russo's third book in his trilogy set in North Bath, which is in upstate New York. That came in at number 13. Mm, genre? Well, Amazon calls it friendship fiction. Okay. And Sherry Lapina's novel, Everyone Here is Lying, is new on the list at number 10. Friendship fiction? <laughs> yeah, that depends on your friend group. No, <laughs> Everyone Here is Lying is a domestic suspense thriller. I'd read it just for the kick-ass title. Same. And coming in at number three, Deadfall by Brad Thor, the 22nd book in his series about Navy SEAL turned lethal operative Scott Harvath. Another Navy SEAL assassin, like mm -hmm. the Jack Carr book reviewed a couple episodes ago. Right. And then finally, we've got Lightbringer by Pierce Brown, the sixth in his dystopian science fiction series called The Red Rising Saga. A lot of activity on the list. Yep. Four books off and four on. Now, before we jump into Five Star Weekend, I've got a little trivia question for you. If you must. Okay. Of the eight books I just mentioned, four on, four off, what do Brad Thor's Deadfall and Chloe Gong's Immortal Longings alone have in common? Hmm, well, one's about death and the other immortality, so I don't know, I give up. I'll give you a hint. Think publisher. Oh, yeah, uh, Marvel. What? Marvel Comics, you know, Thor. No, <laughs> Brad Thor is the author of Deadfall. It's not a character in it, so it's not Marvel. It's Simon and Schuster. Oh. 
which published Dudfall and Immortal Longings. And you're telling me this because... Because the big news this week. Paramount, the owner of Simon & Schuster... Simon & Schuster. What did I say? You keep saying Simon & Schuster. (laughs) Okay, well, which is it? Schuster. I'll try to remember that. Do do you have a, a mnemonic for me? I just know it. Paramount was going to sell Simon & Schuster to PRH, Penguin Random House, and they had a deal, $2.2 billion. Ooh. Yeah. With a B? But with a B, but the Justice Department stopped it. Oh, right. That big case. Yeah, a big antitrust case. There's only five big publishers left. There's only five left, and they dominate the market. And I even looked it up to get some um, sense of this. There's been 124 bestsellers on the hardcover fiction list this year. 124. 17 of them from Hachette, 15 from HarperCollins, 16 from Macmillan, 22 from Simon & Schuster, PRH, 48. That only leaves six of those, or 5%, from independent publishers. Oh, boy. Yeah. So the whole point of the antitrust legislation is to keep competition alive. Yeah. Right. So um, they actually nixed that deal, that $2.2 billion deal, before PRH could acquire another major publisher and become even more dominant. The, the concern is if you don't have any competition, they're not competing over price, price of the books, price of the labor, prices that they pay their authors. Yeah. And it also, if you've got some independents out there, then you might have more authors, more books, more different kinds of stories other, rather than just fitting into a particular mold. That's that's definitely the hope. So they squashed the deal from Paramount selling uh, Simon Schuster to PRH. But guess what? What happened? KKR made a deal this week. KKR is Kohlberg Kravis Roberts, an asset management company. They're going to buy it for $1.6 billion in an all-cash deal. So what does KKR know about publishing books for Simon & Schuster? (laughs) See, that's the the big million-dollar, or I should say billion-dollar question. Is this going to change anything? KKR is not a media company. This is the first time one of the major publishers has been bought by a company that's really about money, plain and simple. They buy assets. And then they do whatever it takes to turn that into profit for them. Sometimes they strip them of their assets. Sometimes they fix them up and sell them. Sometimes they grow them. Sometimes they just take the parts that they think are working, get rid of the rest. So So nobody knows what's going to happen here. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the Barbie movie that's out now. Once you buy your Barbie doll, you get to do whatever you want with it. You know, you can play rough or not. So they can play rough with Simon and Schuster. They could they could really strip it down and, and then ironically we would end up with four big publishing houses, which was what the Justice Department was trying to stop. Yeah. Now I will say this, there's no need to panic. They have bought some media companies before and they haven't always trashed them. In July twenty eighteen they purchased RB Media, one of the largest audiobook publishers and distributors. They sold that in 2023. They also own Overdrive, which is a major distributor of ebooks to libraries. Hmm. You know, so they have media in their huge portfolio and they don't always destroy it. Sometimes they grow it. In 2021, this is a little random, they bought a majority stake in the catalog of Ryan Tedder and his band, One Republic. I ain't worried about it. Okay then. Let's talk about Five Star Weekend. 
Does any of this affect Five Star Weekend? No. Keeping dreams alive. Five Star Weekend is published by Hachette. It's a 367-page novel. It's, the author is represented by Michael Carlyle and David Ferrer at Inkwell Management. And the author has a long paragraph about her agents and her acknowledgement. She says, quote, they are not only five-star agents, they are five-star human beings. Aww. And the readership for this book is about 96% female, the same proportion as the novel we just reviewed, Identity by Nora Roberts. The audiobook is 12 hours and 45 minutes read by Aaron Bennett, who's done a lot of Alan Hildebrand and also Katie Winters, who writes a series about Martha's Vineyard. So how would you rate the voice work here? I think it was well done. It was clear, crisp voicing. It was easy to follow. So what do we know about the author? So Ellen Hildebrand is originally from Pennsylvania. When growing up, she spent her summers on Cape Cod, swimming and playing on the beach. Her father died in a plane crash when she was 16, and she spent her first summer without him doing piecework in a factory making Halloween costumes. Mm. That experience was apparently so dreadful, she promised herself as a life goal that she would always thereafter have real summers. And since 1993, she's lived on Nantucket, where apparently people have real summers every year. She's 54 years old, divorced, three children. She's a grateful nine-year breast cancer survivor, as we learn in the author note at the end of the novel. New York Magazine called her the queen of beach reads. But you could also call her the queen of writing what you know. She writes about breast cancer. She writes about women losing their husbands and girls losing their fathers. These are themes from her life. She writes about Nantucket. In fact, Five Star Weekend is her 29th novel, and like nearly all of her previous works, it's set in Nantucket. Her first novel, The Beach Club, came out in 2000, and she's released a novel in June or July pretty much every year since. In 2014, she started adding an additional winter novel every year, first a four-part Christmas series set in Nantucket, then a winter holiday getaway series set in the Caribbean. So she can write about places other than Nantucket. Yes, though she still sticks to the write-what-you-know principle, because the three-part Paradise series, as it's called, the one in the Caribbean, is set on the island of St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where guess who lives for part of each year? She does. Yeah, so she, you know, she sticks to what she knows. Nice. What are her books about? Well, they're romances, they're relationship fiction generally, but she has ventured into other genres once in a while. One of her Nantucket summer reads is a murder mystery called The Perfect Couple, which, by the way, looks likely to be the first of her books to get a major film adaptation. There's a version with Nicole Kidman and Dakota Fanning that went into production March. Oh, that sounds fun. So I'm hoping that'll work out. She's also tried a bit of historical fiction with her 2019 novel, Summer of 69, which I think was her first number one bestseller. So she's a published author at 30, a New York Times number one bestselling author by 50. And something like 10 million books sold in between that. <laughs> now, surprisingly, she did announce a couple years ago she was planning to write her last novel in 2024. Really? And then do what? She wants to become a book influencer. She thinks that writers are the best people to make book recommendations, not actors, not TV personalities. Meaning Reese Witherspoon and Oprah? Yeah, she name-checked them explicitly. She said flat out that she would make a better book influencer than either of those two. Wow, taking on Oprah. Our girl's got moxie. (sighs) Or a death wish. I'm not insinuating anything here, but has she ever... No, I checked. She has never been picked for the Oprah Book Club. 
nor Reese's. Well, okay then. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows if she's really going to give up writing novels after 2024. But if she does, this could be one of our last chances to review her work as it's coming out. So let's get into it. What's the story? Hollis Shaw is 53 years old. She's married to Matthew Madden, who's a surgeon. They have a daughter, Caroline, who's an undergraduate film student at NYU. Hollis publishes a food blog called Hungry with Hollis and has really taken off in the last few years and there's some strain in her relationship with her husband. Hollis grew up on Nantucket and still has a summer home in the Squam Road area of the island. There's a line in the book, all Drew Ann knows of Nantucket is Moby Dick and the lewd limerick. That's me, (laughs) except without the Moby Dick memory but with multiple lewd limericks bouncing around in my head. You know, with a name like Nantucket, those limericks kind of write themselves. So for the geographically impaired like me, where is this place? So I'll ignore for the moment the lewd limericks bouncing around in your head. (laughs) But Nantucket is... No, I said they write themselves. (laughs) Nantucket. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Nantucket is an island about... You can't ignore that. 30 miles south of the Cape Cod region of Massachusetts. There are people who live there year-round, but it's mostly known as a tourist destination and summer colony, particularly for the rich and famous. Okay, thank you. So right at the beginning of the book, Hollis's husband Matthew dies in an automobile accident on his way to the airport. The story takes place seven months after the accident, with Hollis starting to think about putting her life back together. She hears about this interesting get-together idea called the Five Star Weekend, in which the hostess invites her four best friends from across the whole scope of her life for a girls-only weekend. Something clicks about this for her as a way to perhaps help her move forward from her loss. Right. She really embraces the concept, and she does invite one friend from each stage of her life. Tatum, which is her best friend growing up, who still lives on the island year-round, and it's, what was she doing, cleaning buildings, I think? Drew Ann, who's Hollis's college roommate and the country's premier agent for female athletes, And then Brooke, a housewife who was Hollis's friend when their kids were all growing up in Wellesley, Massachusetts. And finally, the last guest, Gigi, who's a pilot for Delta Airlines and not really a friend of Hollis's. They never met in person until the weekend, but she's one of her blog subscribers and the one that Hollis opened up to the most via, you know, messaging after her husband died. The last major character to come to Nantucket for the five-star weekend is her daughter, Caroline, who is entangled in a secret love affair with the famous documentarian she is currently interning for. Hollis asks asks Caroline if she could hire her to film the weekend, and she grabs the opportunity to make some extra cash, but also to get a break from the rather strained situation she's in with her mentor. Right, so there's multiple storylines in this book. Hollis's recovery from her grief, but also Tatum is waiting for the result of a biopsy, Brooke's in crisis with her husband, who has just been fired because he groped another staff person at his workplace. Drew Ann's got major career drama. She's on the verge of being canceled due to an unfortunate viral comment she made about her client's mental health. And then there's unresolved conflict between Drew and Tatum going back to Hollis's wedding. And if all of that is not enough, there's a lingering mystery of who is this Gigi person and what is she really doing there? That is a lot. And all happening at the same time. Not one or two story questions, a bucket full, a big bucket full. There once was a bucket in Nantucket. So I'll just wrap it up with this. <laughs> can resist. Do all six women find resolution, growth, arc in their personal, interpersonal, marital, career, and love lives through the weekend? 
And just as important, does KKR launch a hostile takeover bid on Hungry with Hollis, the blog? And if so, does Hollis resist? Or does she give in and sell out to the man? Read Five Star Weekend and find out. As we did. So what did you think? Let's start with our first category, Grip and Grab. We were talking about how maybe we should call it Grab and Grip, because what we're really talking about here is the book Grab You and Then Hold You. And I have to say, I didn't have Grip and Grab or Grab and Grip in this. But it also made me realize I could almost do an objective measure of this category. How long does it take you to get through the book? (laughs) (sighs) Right? And this dragged on for weeks. You know, to be fair, we were launching the, the podcast the last few weeks, and that takes some work to get it uploaded and up. In fact, some we've already got some listeners and we got some feedback from, we were at a writing conference last week and one of our colleagues, didn't, yeah, didn't she, she send you a note or something? She did. She said we were funny, intellectual, and sincere. <laughs> Which is a nice comment for me because I didn't know I was being sincere. <laughs> but I think sincerely you had trouble, regardless of whatever else was going on in our lives, I think it was sincere that you had trouble yeah. getting through this book. But the, the measure is... You know, I'll give you an example. When my son was, my son Adam was, uh, I don't know, middle school, one of the Harry Potter books came out. And he did what so many people were doing back then. He bought it the day it came out. He parked himself on the couch. I remember him reclined on the couch. You know how teens do where they're holding the book at the most awkward angle possible. And he (laughs) stayed there all day. He slept on the couch. He stayed there the next day until he finished it. It was like a, what, seven, 800 page book. And he never broke. That's what I mean about an objective measure of grab and grip. That would get a five. (laughs) Yeah, whereas I gave this category a one. There are so many storylines. Each of them is handled sort of sporadically and sometimes quickly. Also, a problem for me is what I would call the Martha Stewart effect. There's a lot of prose going into great detail about how the room is decorated, how the table is set, what the women are wearing. It's a lot, and that's not... That's not moving to me. It doesn't grab me. Well, yeah. So for me, I thought grab and grip was good. It was it was solid. It wasn't a five. I mean, I also have spent 24 hours in a lazy boy chair with a new Harry Potter. I was intrigued by this story question. I was sad about the hearing about the death of her husband as she was reaching out and trying to help herself heal and move on from that tragic event. Um, I thought this sounded like a really good a really good way for her to try to move on. And and the fact that all of her friends were actually able to come. Um, People's lives are busy, but I was very intrigued by how each of them would react to this. And I so I grab and grip was a three for me. It was a one for me. And I I already mentioned that she's got these long descriptions. Like here's one uh, about one of the rooms. It's like stepping right into Instagram. The wallpaper reminds Brooke of a man's tailored shirt with classic navy, light blue and subdued gray pinstripes there's a walnut pencil post bed dressed up in crisp white sheets and a navy it just goes on like this that's like a tiny portion of it and it's over and over and over throughout the book but there's another thing that is different from the other books we've read like what i was just describing the martha stewart effect that's a lot like nora roberts she does it too well yeah i mean so in the nora roberts that we've reviewed there would be like a page and a half detour Mm. on that stuff and i did not find that helpful or satisfying but in this i thought it was perfectly tasteful like it helped me picture what was going on in the room it just set it was like here's the stage and then here's the action and i appreciated it 
Well, grab and grip is a subjective category. There's just no way around it. Of course. So it grabbed you better than me. Yeah. The the other feature of her writing that I think is I think is unique of the books we've read this year is what I'm calling astroturfing. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. Expression. So in politics, you want there to be a grassroots movement supporting your policies. If you pretend, if you fake it, like if you hire people to show up with signs to make it look like there's grassroots, that's called astroturfing. And I, I've also noticed it at things like the the Super Bowl halftime show where the, they actually bring in an audience onto the field and they're paid to be really, really excited about the act. So how does that connect to this book? The whole book is suffused with it because think about the, the, the opening reading that you shared at the top of the episode. She's constantly cutting to people who are watching Hollis, people who are mm. interested in Hollis, people who are commenting on Hollis. She's even got her daughter filming what, what the Five Star Weekend is about. It's all throughout the book. So it's like another way of telling us as readers, you should be excited about Hollis too because all these people are. Like here's a quote. Um, the flight attendants whom Gigi works with chatter about Hollis Shaw nonstop. They love her recipes. They love her blouses. They love her Serbian sheepdog. They love her preppy boho vibe. She's a greatest hits of American womanhood, and they just love her so much. But that's grassroots, not astroturfing. It's astroturfing when the author has put it in <laughs> to convince you how exciting and interesting Hollis Shaw is. Again, it's subjective. This might work very, very well for a lot of people. For me, I'm like... Okay, that's a nice trick, Ellen Hildebrand. For whatever reason, it's not working for me. Finney disagrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> Many people do. So what did you... Including Golden Retriever people. So does, is, does that, is that part of the she got flair category? Yeah, it overlaps. It really does. I, I didn't know where to put it exactly. Um, you know, it could also be world building. But for she got flair, guess what I gave her? What did you give her? I gave her a 3.5. What? Generally speaking, you like this book better than I did, but this one, I think you gave it a three. I gave it a three. You know, I'm being fair to her. I'm acknowledging that her writing is good. Yeah. Um, the only thing that brought it down for me is what I already mentioned, Got the it. Martha Stewart effect. She is very witty. She handles the complexity of this setup. Well, she knows how to write. She's got some artistry in the book. Yeah. You know, there's things, little things that happened at the beginning that are connected all the way back at the end. These are things that, to be honest, I did not notice all of them the first time through the book. When I was collecting my notes and my thoughts, I actually raised the score of this category, which I think we're allowed to do because it's <laughs> our podcast and our rules. So it went up from a 3 to a 3.5. Good. And I wanted to share some examples of her wittiness. Yeah, let's hear There's some. There's a ton of them. Here's one. She moves on to the herbs, fresh dill, fresh basil, a bunch of chives, and what market manager Lily and the rest of the staff refer to as porn star mint. <laughs> it's very well endowed. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. There's a bunch of them. Um, just listen to this one. They, Drew Ann and her love interest Nick, they haven't spoken in two and a half days, and she misses him the way she'd miss hot running water or a second pillow. Aww. She'll survive, but it's not at all pleasant. <laughs> that's good writing. Yeah, that's very good. So the one I gave, I thought her flair was good, um, her writing style and the way she made her descriptions. And one of the ones that I liked was the, uh, bless you, Finny. One of the ones that I liked was 
where she described Hollis as the golden butter and sugar glow of Hollis herself. I nice. thought that was great. And I gave it a three, the she got flair category. I want to talk about one other thing of her flair, but before I do, I have to give one more example. So they're out dancing and they find Brooke, I'm quoting now, they find Brooke, okay, wow, in the center of a circle of chads. <laughs> Druan can't remember what a group of chads is called. It's either a privilege or an inheritance. <laughs> And I laughed. I wrote in the margin, <laughs> funniest line of the year so far. If we have an end of the year show, that's going to be up at the top of the list. That is really funny. If you know what a chat is, I hope you do. So we, before we leave this category, I, I wanted to do an audio example. And I didn't know which category it fit best. So let's just put it here. This will give you a sense of not only of the characters and the world building, but also the flair, the quality of her prose. So all the women have gotten there finally for the weekend. And they're kind of sitting around listening to music and having a glass of wine. They're having some discussions. So here's an example of her writing about a little group discussion that the women have. Let's listen. Gigi takes a sip of wine. Let's change the subject, she says. How do you all feel about faking your orgasms? The table sits in stunned silence. Oops, Gigi thinks. Caroline is so glad she has the camera rolling. This woman is awesome. Tatum takes a swallow of Pinot Grigio, which goes down like water, headache tomorrow for sure, and says, I've never faked an orgasm in my life. Liar, Druan says. Everyone fakes. It's the reason men are so insecure. They can never be sure if it's real or if we're pulling a Meg Ryan. Who is Meg Ryan? Caroline wonders. I have never faked an orgasm, Tatum says. Kyle knows how to make me scream. He stands behind me. She stops. Do you want to hear this? Uh, no, Druan says. We're eating. I want to hear, Brooke says. <laughs> That's a good one. So the next one is uh, Be Me Up, the world building. What did you think about that category? I gave it a 2.5. It's a it's a rating that shows that there are things I liked about it and things that didn't work as well. Um, of course, she knows Nantucket backwards and forwards, so that's that's there. I already talked about how much she focuses on the rooms, the clothing, the table settings, the food. I, I was almost trying to think of a name for this type of fiction. I came up with consumer fiction, which you could also call it material culture. She's very focused on things that you see and hear and touch and taste. And I put that in world building as both a positive and a negative. It helps you experience the world, but sometimes it's a bit much. But let me read one quote. A tall, slender, painfully chic salesperson takes in Drew Ann's look, her mother jeans, golden goose sneakers, Rick Owens tea under a cream linen Veronica Beard blazer, and gives her a nearly imperceptible nod of approval. That's what I'm talking about with the focus on material culture. Lots of brand names. I will say that she incorporates them better than, say, Jack Carr, where it almost felt like the story came to a halt when he goes through all the stock numbers and model numbers of the 
of the guns and knives. Um, so she inc- incorporates it well, but it's, it's a lot of brand names. Yeah, so for Beam Me Up, I, it was strong. I, I felt like the world was built well and I understood it. I understood it, the dichotomy between the people who lived there, the, the year-rounders, and the people who, and the tourists, and the pull of Hollis Shaw and her own environment. Her grief juxtaposed with the joy of having her friends there. I was really pulled in and I really felt like I, I was enjoying the world. Like I was along, I may not have been one of the five stars, but I was one of the, I was enjoying it right along with them. And I gave it a 3.5. Something happened with this book that hasn't happened before this year. When I went back through my notes, I started realizing how frequently she references music by the name of the artist, by the name of the song. And it's all over the place. It's what's playing in the background when they walk into a room, when they get in the car, memories with certain people that are associated with music. And of course, when she brings her friends in, being the perfect hostess, she's got a playlist for each one of them. And it occurred to me that your experience of the book would really be enhanced if you could hear these. It's one thing just to read the name of a, you know, a group, Hootie and the Blowfish, or a song, Wild Horses. But if you could hear a little bit of it, maybe in the background of your reading, and so I tested it. I, I did it a little bit myself, and honestly, my emotional reaction to the book really changed. What? I told you I changed my score after putting my notes together. And I looked, and nobody has constructed a playlist for the book, at least not that I've seen. Wow, that's an missed opportunity. So <laughs> so I built one. Oh, my goodness. She has 67 music references in the book. That's a lot. 39 songs are named, 49 groups. It's part of her world building. And it's a really good part. So I am going to take this playlist that I put on YouTube Music. Okay. So if you have YouTube Music, you can go there and you can search on the name of the playlist, which is the Five Star Weekend Playlist. I'm taking it public right now as we speak. Wow. There, it's public. That's exciting. And you could play this as you're working through the book. It's a 40-track, 2-hour, and 39-minute playlist. I would not suggest that you play the whole thing. (laughs) Sample it as you're reading and see if it makes the reading experience even better than it already is. How fun is that? That was really fun, and it, it really did enhance my enjoyment of the book. That's wonderful. So what about New Best Friends? How did you do with that category? That one was also a mixed bag. I gave it a 2.5. What did you give it? For New Best Friends, I gave it a 3. Here's the surprising thing. Hollis is not that strong a character. And I I think it has to do with the fact that there's so many other characters that we don't get enough of what's going on with her. Just to speak to that, I think that once all of the rest of the women arrive for the weekend, the perspective isn't, or the focus isn't on Hollis anymore. And I kind of feel like that's one of the things that left me a little wanting. Like I, even though I enjoyed everything about how the other women were um, experiencing the weekend, I still wanted to know more about how Hollis was doing. There's certainly no trouble with her writing in terms of distinguishing these six women from each other. That's Mm -hmm. done really well. But you have to have a little bit more of what she's thinking and feeling as you move through the book to really get drawn and feel like I'm making a new best friend here. I think both of us felt with Hollis that we needed a little bit more. One of the characters who could have been great was Drew Ann. Remember, Drew Ann is the African-American athlete, her Mm -hmm. roommate in college, who becomes an agent. Mm -hmm. And she has a 
ESPN show called Throw Like a Girl, and she's got lots of clients. And she's having a major career crisis because uh, some comment she made was captured on a phone and went viral, and everybody's canceling her. She made some offhand comment about mental health. She doesn't really fight. Mm. She does not fight what's happening to her career. And that doesn't draw you into the character either. She's very passive about it. Here's a line. It's actually funny from, say, a nihilist perspective, how with one sentence, Drew Ann vaporized her entire life. So what now? Well, now she enjoys her cocktail and helps herself to the Thai curry lobster. That was how this Drew situation was handled the whole weekend. She she didn't work on it. So that doesn't really you know bond you to the character. I, w- I thought Caroline was developed really well, and I had... I was feeling things with her. Tatum, I thought was developed. Gigi was interesting. That's what, It was a mixed bag for me. That's why it's a 2.5. Got it. Well, just to respond to that, I, I felt like Duran's, or her, the tactic that she took, which was to lay low and wait, I felt like it was a valid uh, approach given all of the circumstances in the in the story. So I, I didn't find fault with that, although, you know, certainly was curious as, as things progressed. Um, the thing about this category, I have an example um, from the book that I just want to read. <clears throat> and this is sort of a flashback as, as Gigi's looking at a photograph that Hollis sees as a framed photograph. She remembers that on that particular day, she'd hired a photographer and her husband and daughter did not come home on time and kind of gone off on their own. So here's a little excerpt. Where are they? Hollis calls them both again. She told them both about the photo shoot this morning before they left the house. She definitely said Lori Richards' family photo. At 5.30, Matthew and Caroline appear over the dunes. Hollis deserves an Academy Award for her performance as an only mildly annoyed wife and mother. I really felt this because this type of subtle distancing of a child by one parent from Mm. another is consistent with the phenomenon known as parental alienation. In my work as a divorce trial lawyer, I see this a lot. A grown daughter spending all day with her father, deliberately not answering a mother's call when plans have been made, showing up disdainfully at the very last second and stating that it was the best day of the summer because it was spent completely without her mom and the wife. These are seeds of alienation. And it's not clear to me whether the author, and certainly not the character, completely understood what was happening in those scenes. But the way that it was portrayed was certainly authentic and accurate, even if not fully understood. My heart breaks for both the mother and the daughter as they begin to reconnect. And I find this part of the book fascinating and all too real. So I gave it a three. I did not pick up any of that. I understand how that could make you feel more bonded to the characters, especially Caroline, um, but also Hollis. What categories are left? So the last one is all the feels. Where do you had? Did you have any kind of emotional reaction to these characters to this story? This was the strangest experience so far of our reviews. I gave it a two. It looks like you gave it. I gave it a three. I read the book. It took me a long time. I already talked about that, and I didn't have a ton of strong feelings throughout or at the end. But when I was reviewing it, especially when I was working on the playlist, pulling quotes out, I was having an emotional reaction to the situation, to the characters, to the book. Like Here's a line. What was it like when your father died, he says. This is a, a young man talking to Caroline. And she's thinking, it was like being suspended over a deep, dark, endless hole, knowing you were going to fall in and never get out. She would never see her father again. Oh my gosh, the emotional moments are there. Yeah. 
there's a motion at the end of the book, you know, with Tatum and her, she's waiting for a biopsy to come back, remember? But yeah. that was handled well. That So there's nothing that says you have to have your full emotional reaction the first time through the book. So I boosted this category after, you know, after my review process. Good. What well, about you for emotion? I did. I had I had some tears. I had some laughter. I had some excitement. Mm-hmm. I gave it a three. I thought this was a solid, solid summer beach read. Thoroughly enjoyable for me. That's our five categories. And you add up all the numbers. It's a total of 27 points, which is a 2.7 star rating. Even more interesting than that, this is the furthest our two rating, our five score ratings have pulled apart in the podcast so far. If you look at my average, it's 2.3. Yours is 3.1. That's fair. And remember, mine is all sort of twisted up because it, it was different <laughs> the second time through. The 2.3 is actually higher than your first So it was one, like right? reading it, it was a 2. And then reviewing it, it was closer to a 3. Good. Our combined score, 2.7, puts Five Star Weekend fourth out of the 11 books this year a full star below happy place by emily henry and about a half a star above i will find you by harlan coben and by comparison this book is scoring 4.5 on amazon 4.22 on goodreads and 4.12 on storygraph all right well thanks for joining us we'll see you next episode when we review the book talk viral phenomenon that is fourth wing by rebecca yaros magic dragons and sex magic dragons having sex Have you finished it yet? Oh, so we're not going to get that? Shoot. Okay, but it's still (laughs) going to be great. Until then, keep dreaming, keep flying. Keep laughing, keep crying. And don't stop until you've read them all to the end. (laughs) You put that in about the